I'd like to encourage, if you would, to take your copy of God's Word and please open it to the book of Genesis, chapter 16. Genesis 16. It's been a week or two since I've given you an update on how Emma is doing. Um, Emma's been doing well. We struggled a little bit with an infection, but she seems to be getting over that. And uh, it's just, once again, just inch by inch and step by step getting stronger uh, each day. So we're very thankful for that and appreciate your prayers very much. When you read through the scripture, and certainly when you study the life of the men and women whose days are recorded in it, you'll find the scripture doesn't try to gloss over their failures. The only perfect person recorded in the pages of the scripture is Jesus. The rest are like us. Failures, fears, ups and downs, sins that have consequences. And this morning we read of one of those instances in the life of Abraham. This is not the only time that Abraham and Sarah stepped outside of God's will. But this takes to the forefront, coming on the, the hills, as it were, as God renews his promise to them that Abraham will be the father of the great nation. So follow with me as I read chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing for my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. 
He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. May God be glorified in the reading and hearing of his word this morning. Waiting is a fact of life. It's not a fact that we like, but waiting is a reality. We all end up waiting. In 2020, Timex, the famed watch company, released a survey regarding waiting in the United States. They discovered that on average, Americans wait 20 minutes a day for a bus or a train. The average wait for Americans at the doctor's office is 32 minutes. You may debate that, but that's what they found. They found every year, annually that is, Americans will wait 13 hours on hold for customer service. And the average commuter spends 38 hours each year in traffic. We know that waiting is a part of life, but that doesn't always make it any easier, does it? In fact, there are times that we handle waiting better than at other times. But at some point, we will all find ourselves waiting on God. Now, we can speak of that in general terms. We're waiting for Jesus to return. But sometimes when it gets to very specifics, you and I will find ourselves at times where we are pleading with God and we are waiting for His answer. Maybe it's been a prayer for a new job. Lord, when are you going to answer this? Or maybe it's a prayer for a spouse. So Lord, when are you going to lead me to that, that person that I'm to spend the rest of my life with? For some couples, it's waiting like Sarah and Abram to become parents. Sarah and Abram have been waiting for a while now. The promise of God has been given to them that they will bear a child and that child will then lead to others who will be, become a great nation. But they aren't getting any younger. This becomes very clear in verse six or chapter 16, verses 1 through 6, because they're getting anxious. So Sarah develops a plan. She will take her servant, Hagar, Give to Abraham so that Hagar can serve as a surrogate mother. So that if Hagar becomes pregnant, the child will be considered hers, that is Sarah's and Abram's. The interesting thing is that Abram goes along with this plan. Verse 2 at the very end where it says, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah has echoes of the Garden of Eden all over it. Because it echoes what had happened when Eve was tempted by the serpent and she took the fruit and gave it to Adam and Adam ate without even raising one question of hesitation. Abram follows that example here. We say, why would she do this? I mean, this is very extreme. 
Sarah is at least in her early 80s at this point. And her biological clock is ticking if it's not already alarmed. And she knows if God's going to do this, something's got to happen. But I think there's also a deeper level happening within Sarah. Not only is she waiting for God to fulfill his word, that they'll become this, this, this patriarch and matriarch of a great nation, but deep within her, her very identity is at question. Because at the time this was written, a woman's identity was bound up in bearing children. And the reality is that at the time Genesis was written, a childless woman was viewed as less than a complete woman. Her identity was at question. The very root of who she was was being challenged by her infertility. And she's bearing this pain that she's going to be looked upon as a failure. So she develops a plan. It's interesting that what is lacking in this entire chapter is anyone crying out to God except for Hagar. Sarah never lays this plan before God. Abram never lays this, this scheme before the Lord to say, God, what would you have me do? So what Sarah does is rather than looking to God saying, Lord, how long? Lord, when will you fulfill this? Lord, give me patience. Sarah looks to the culture for cues on what to do. Because what Sarah does when she gives her servant to her husband as a concubine is exactly what the culture around them deemed acceptable. So rather than looking up to God and saying, Lord, you direct my steps, Sarah looks around at what the culture deems as acceptable in this situation. She lets that guide her in what she does. Now, I would remind you that the Scripture, as I said earlier, never tries to gloss over the mistakes and the errors. God's intent is for there to be one man with one woman as husband and wife. And any time concubinage is mentioned in the Scripture, any time there is polygamy, it never ends well. Never. And that's exactly the case here. Now, I have to admit, in reading this text, at first glance, it doesn't seem like it's very applicable to us, does it? I mean, I don't know of anyone in this congregation that has received word in their 60s that they're going to have children. If that's the case, please let me know. So how does this apply to us? It does. Because although the specific circumstances may be different, we are often guilty of acting just like Sarah does. We're waiting on God. We grow impatient. And then we look to our culture for cues on how we should behave. Rather than seeking God, we seek solutions from the world around us. Now, there are several ways that we do this. But I want to put, on, put before us one illustration, one example where I feel like this is act, where we act this way. And that is in the area of love and commitment. Now, once again, there are many illustrations that I could give of this, this principle of looking to culture rather than to God for guidance. But if there's one area that is doing more harm among Christians today, as well as the world, it is in the area of love and commitment because we all desire to be loved. We all do. 
That's part of being made in the image of God. God who is love created us as beings who desire to know love, to share love, and to be loved. And we long for commitment. And so often we are in a situation where we must wait. We must wait for the relationship to come along that will lead to marriage. And so often while we are waiting, there becomes this, this tempting to compromise sexually. You see, what happens is fear sets in. Will I be loved? Will I find that person, Lord? What if I don't? And the question uh, that Satan uses in our minds is this. What am I missing? What is God keeping from me by telling me to save sexual purity for marriage? And so then, because we become fearful, because we are afraid we are missing out on something that God has ordained between a husband and wife, we begin to look to our culture for answers. And the solution that our culture gives us is this. Sex is the equivalent of love. In fact, to our culture, sexual intimacy has become the highest expression of love. Plus, they also say it's just a physical desire. So what could be wrong with it? So we have this, this young man or this young woman that's a follower of Christ. They're beginning to worry, becoming fearful. When will I find that person? Why should I, I save myself? The culture around me is saying that this is the expression of love. And then the culture gives this, this thinking that says, well, you know what? Sex is just a physical drive. If you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. If you have this desire and this drive, why not give in to it? But understand that viewing physical intimacy as only a physiological drive denies the beauty and the power and the purpose for which God designed it. You have to understand that God made man and woman so that in the act of physical intimacy within marriage, that act creates a bond Two, becoming one in a committed relationship. A bond that seals a couple together, not just physically, but emotionally, and I believe even spiritually. So if that is what God designed sex to be, we must recognize that going outside of His plan, just like Sarah did with Abram, will create problems. Think of it like this. As I shared last week, I am not very art and crafty. So... I glued two sheets of paper together. I know, it worked. All right? Around one side, white on the other. Now I want you to imagine this for a moment as a picture of sexual intimacy. Okay? As God designed it. Two becoming one. So what happens then if after sexual intimacy, there is a severing of the relationship? The pages didn't come apart clearly, did they? They were torn. Some is still left. That's what happens when we take this gift of God and open it outside of the bonds of marriage. It creates pain and hurt. No matter what the culture says in arguing that it's just physical, hear me clearly, it's not. Opening this gift apart from God's design will only bring hurt and the tearing of your soul. So this is what our culture proposes now. If indeed is the bonding between husband and wife. Then the answer to our culture is well engage in that activity. But you don't have to get married as long as you love each other. Just live together or cohabitate. Now once again keep in mind the big picture. 
when that happens among believers, and according to statistics, the rate that unbelievers are cohabitating, or let me put it like this, the rate believers, people who profess to know Christ, live together is no different from the world. Let that sink in for a moment. There are people who grow up in church who see nothing wrong whatsoever with this. Because that's the world an- world's answer. It's all about love. And if we engage in, in physical and sexual intimacy, what's the matter with us just saying we love one another and move in? After all, isn't marriage just a piece of paper? I hear that a lot. But I wonder if that person would feel the same way if I asked them to take a $100 bill out of their wallet and give it to me. And then once I have that $100 bill in my hand from their wallet, if I took and tore it in two, and they said, what are you doing? I would say, that's just a piece of paper. No, it's not. What's the difference? It's the value we give to something. You see, a marriage license, a marriage certificate, is more than just a piece of paper. It signifies a legally and societally recognized commitment that makes a person husband and wife. It matters. And I want you to understand that God's plan is always better. In 2019, the Pew Research Organization, which, by the way, is not a Christian organization, so you cannot cry, well, this was was jaundiced by their own preconceived ideas. The Pew Research Organization found that married adults report greater satisfaction and higher rates of trust than those who cohabitate. God's plan is always better. But the temptation to do what Sarah did is very real. Because we fear. And that's why I want you to realize that just like with Sarai, when we go outside of God's plan and we look to the culture around us for cues on how we should behave, there will always be consequences. Look at the end of verse 4. Sarah's plan works. Hagar becomes pregnant. She conceives. And look what happens. Hagar looks with contempt upon Sarah. This continues. Look at the end of verse 6. Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar. And Hagar fled from her. And then at the end of verse 12. He, that's a reference to Ishmael, will be a wild donkey of a man. Now what that's saying is not that he's going to be wild and unruly. But that he will live kind of by himself. And his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. So out of this union between Abram and Hagar will come this child who will lead a people. And indeed that's happened. That is the root of the Arab nations today. And there will always be this sense of enmity. But I want you to notice something in these consequences. They're relational. The consequences of trying to go around God's will and taking our cues from the culture will always involve using others to get what we want. In other words, if we enter into, say, physical intimacy or or cohabitating, no matter how we dress it up, we are basically seeking to use that other person to gain what we want. Hagar is an example of this. Hagar was a victim. 
Notice it emphasizes that she was a servant from Egypt, Hagar the Egyptian. Hagar is probably one that was given to Abram and Sarah by Pharaoh several years ago when Abram had gone down to Egypt and the Pharaoh gave them servants and goods. And there's no indication whatsoever that Hagar was a willing participant in this plan. That's why I believe Hagar despised Sarah. She'd been used. This was against her will. And that's why she ran away in verse 6. And you have to ask yourself when you read verse 6 and she runs away, how bad must have things have been for this pregnant Egyptian slave to run away because she goes into the wilderness with no support, nothing. She has got nothing. And apparently she's on her way back to Egypt because where she ends up on the way to shore is the path that would be taken back to Egypt. Now many sadly can empathize with Hagar. You've been used. And it wasn't by your choice. And there is pain. And you've been running just like she has been. You may not have been running physically. But emotionally. And spiritually. And that's why this morning I want you to hear the good news. That God hears you. He cares for you. Look at verse 8. The angel of the Lord found her. Now it's believed the angel of the Lord was a, it's what's called a theophany. It's an appearance of God in a form that can be recognized by a human so that God begins to engage in an interchange with this person. So the angel of the Lord, God finds her. And notice in verse 8, he asks her a question. Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, do you think that this question was for God's benefit? Because notice, God knows her name and knows she's a servant of Sarah. This is not for God's benefit as as if God is saying, somewhere I lost track of you, Hagar, where are you? These questions are for Hagar to take a survey of what's going on in her life. Okay, Hagar, where are you? Where are you going? What's your plan here, Hagar? Take a good look at this. Now, I want to be very clear. When you get to verse 9, after Hagar says to God, I'm fleeing from a mistress, Sarah, the angel of the Lord says to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, let me be clear. This is not a command to just put up with abuse. It's not. This is not God telling her, just go back and put up with it. If you are in an abusive situation, seek help. Do not place yourself in a situation where you are going to be physically harmed or sexually abused. When God says to her, go back, that was the best option she had at the time because she had no other options. If she continues on her own, she's pregnant, she's a woman in the wilderness, she has nowhere to go. She is not going to find the refuge she needs launching out by herself. Plus, God knows that the best chance for Hagar to find mercy and help is with Abram because what you see as the the story unfolds in chapters ahead is that God cares for Hagar and Ishmael through Abram. 
So he says to her, take stock of where you are. You are going on a dead end that's going to lead to your death. Go back and I will provide and take care of you. Because notice the promises that he gives to her. Verse 10, I will surely multiply you. First of all, you have a future. God promises Hagar, forget what lies behind. Move forward. I have a plan for you. I'm going to make you a, a, a leader of a great nation. Don't let your past define who you are. Our God is a God of healing. In fact, in the weeks ahead, we will be talking about identity more and more. About recognizing who we are, that it is God who makes our identity and forms us who we are at the core of our being. Your hope is in what God will do. And yes, right now, the circumstances may seem difficult and overwhelming. But understand, God is a God of healing and redemption. So God promises her a future. Notice the next thing God promises. This is in verse 11. The angel of the Lord said, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. God hears. And then notice God's promise. He looks after her. Verse 13, she says, you are a God who knows and sees. I've seen him who looks after me. So she names this place, Bir Lahoi Roy, the well of the one who sees me. So there are consequences relationally. And there are consequences in the future. Verse 12. Everyone's hand will be against him and he should dwell over against all his kinsmen. This is that warning to us who would look to the culture rather than to Christ for our cues. There will always be consequences. You can't sow weeds and expect fruit. The scripture is very clear. We reap what we sow. And that's where this morning, I, I pray this does not come across as judgmental or condemning. But I want you to know the hope of Christ. And that you can trust the Lord. Because God gives a new beginning. Verse, verses 15 and 16 serve as a summary. Hagar bears a son. Abram calls the name of the son Ishmael. And he's 86 years old. In chapter 21, Hagar comes back into the story and we see God's provision at an even deeper level. And Sarah has to learn to wait. It'll be 15 more years before Isaac is born. But she learns to trust the Lord. So this morning, I guess if there were two things I would want you to take away from this message is one, look to the Lord. Trust Him. Trust His design. Please, don't give in to the temptation to look around at our culture and take cues for your behavior from them. Look to the Lord and trust His plan. And the second is, if you have suffered at the hands of anyone as a victim, our God is a God of healing and a future. I want you to know that you are not alone. If we can be a part of that healing, we want to be. Because we believe in the power of the gospel.
we believe our God is gracious and merciful. I want to ask you, if you will, to please bow your heads with me this morning. This morning, our kneeling benches are open. If you want to come and just pray, please know you have the freedom to do that. I'll be here at the front both during this invitation time and even afterward. And so if you would like to speak with me, I will be available to do that. Please understand that God tells us to wait, not because He is angry, not because He is mean, but because He has the best in mind for us. He made us. He knows us. Trust Him. Trust Him. Father, every one of us can identify with Sarah. There's not one of us in here that hasn't grown impatient and started looking to the world for what we ought to do rather than looking to You. Father, we are all guilty. So Lord, I thank You this morning for Your grace, for Your mercy, for the hope that You give us, that You are a God who redeems you, Lord, will take what the evil one means for harm and you will use it for good. Lord, we believe that. Forgive us for our unbelief and our doubt. So, Lord, I pray this will be a time of healing and a time of recalibration where by your mercies we can reorient our life to your plan. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.